0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. Professor Kim Whaley returns to the podcast to discuss her latest book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. The upcoming 2020 presidential election comes with its own unique challenges, from debates over mail-in voting to foreign interference, but voting in America has never been a straightforward affair, as the book demonstrates. We spoke with Kim about some of these issues, what the Constitution itself has to say about voting, and some simple things you can do to make sure you're registered and prepared to vote this November and in future elections. So joining us on our podcast right now, we have return guest, Kim Whaley. Um, she's here today to talk about her book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. And Kim, thanks for returning to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Um, so I was actually going through our um, my notes for our last interview, and it looks like I had meant to ask you a question about the Electoral College, but we ran out of time. So this seems like a perfect segue to jump back into it. Um, so what does the Constitution have to say about the Electoral College?
1: Well, the Constitution... It's a hotly
0: debated topic.
1: Right. So, so the Constitution does establish the Electoral College expressly. So it is a hotly debated topic, and a lot of people think that the Electoral College should be abolished, uh, that there, uh, there's definitely some movement to to shift it completely. But the problem is that the Constitution is very difficult to amend. Uh, it requires two thirds of both houses of Congress and then ratification that is votes by three quarters of state legislatures. So my view on the Electoral College, it's not going anywhere. Um, but when we go to the polls, we are actually not voting for president directly. We are voting for a slate of electors who then will vote for president. In Five times in American history, the Electoral College has not lined up with the popular vote, uh, most recently, of course, uh, in the last election in 2016, where Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but Trump won the election. And that's why people are upset about the Electoral College. Um, but it can be addressed without a constitutional amendment. So the problems with the Electoral College really boil down to how the electors are directed by state law to cast their votes for president. So in all but two states, Nebraska and Maine, the state law directs the electors to um, cast all of their electoral votes for whoever won the plurality of popular votes in that state. So imagine you have state X that... Uh, the popular vote, 60% goes to uh, Joe Biden, 40% goes to Donald Trump, all of the electors for that state in the Electoral College must vote for Joe Biden, which means the 40% of individuals who cast their votes for Donald Trump basically get canceled out at the time that the electors actually vote for president. So a way to address the Electoral College without talking about um, amending the Constitution, which I think is just a non-starter, is to have state legislatures change the rules for how electoral co- electors are to cast their votes to make it more proportionate with the popular vote. Um, so that, for example, 60 percent of the electors in my hypothetical would vote for Joe Biden and 40% would vote for Donald Trump. Now, there are experts that think that would be a pro- that would be problematic, um, that it would, it would lead to unintended consequences. Uh, you know, I, I'm not interested really in weighing in, in that debate, except to say that we know the way it's working now is upsetting a lot of people. So state legislatures really should rethink how they direct the electors to actually decide who's the president.
0: And now it's interesting that, as you mentioned, the Electoral College is something that is outlined in the Constitution as, you know, something that we just have to do. Um, But on the other hand, one of the first things you mentioned in the book, which I thought was really fascinating, is that our right to vote, which we talk about as this intrinsic American right, is not expressly laid out in the Constitution, which I find that fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I I actually, Michael, I was surprised um, because you know, as a constitutional scholar, a lot of constitutional law, when you're doing an analysis, you start with the plain language of the Constitution. Um, and so if you look for the plain language of the Constitution, say setting forth an affirmative right to vote, you won't find it in the original Constitution. And that is in part um, because the framers decided to leave the process of voting to individual states. I mean, back when the Constitution was ratified, Americans were were sort of Virginians or New Yorkers or sort of had loyalty to their state as mini sovereigns before they had loyalty to what we now know as the United States of America and this broad federal entity. And the framers couldn't agree on a method for voting, so they basically punted it to the states. Now, the other thing to keep in mind that's really important is that at the time the Constitution was ratified, the only people in America who could cast votes were wealthy white males, white males who own land. So we have seen um, the right to vote appears, I think six times in amendments to the constitution. And that was because Americans through ratification of the constitution expanded the voting tent to include formerly enslaved males, to include women, to include people under the age of 21, between the age of 18 and 21, for example, to include people who live in the District of Columbia. Um, But I think the fact that we start out as an opt-in system with a narrow range of people who have access to the vote in America is partly why we have so many problems, I think, today and so many debates around voting. In other democracies, it's an opt-out system. Everyone's automatically in, and you have to decide to get out, which is why in Australia, for example. Approximately ninety percent of people vote. Of course, there's also a, a law requiring that and a small financial penalty if you don't. but it it's it's psychologically a very, very different approach. Um, and the right to vote has been recognized by the United States Supreme Court as pivotal and basically foundational to all other rights, but it's not expressed anywhere in the Constitution. And this particular Supreme Court, we've seen, I think, five or six times during Covid weigh in on voting challenges. and frankly, The current United States Supreme Court, the conservative majority, has not shown much interest, frankly, in protecting the individual right to vote. And we know this because in the, I think, five different cases that have made their way to the Supreme Court during the, the COVID pandemic, in the majority of them, the court has not sided with the right to vote. If the Constitution were amended to affirmatively include a right to vote in the Constitution, The Supreme Court would have to basically hold that up as paramount Um, right now because it's not in there in any express way in the original Constitution. The court can kind of sort of be fast and loose with it in a way that if it were express, it could not. Now, with the amendments, um, if there are um, if there are attempts by states to discriminate expressly on the basis of gender, for example, or on the basis of race relating to the right to vote, the amendments would protect those categories of people. Um, But we could use, I think, a, a really clear shot across the bow to the United States Supreme Court and to the states that the right to vote is the most important thing when you have challenges to electoral processes. And you better figure out how to make your state electoral processes work in ways that provide access as the primary objective and we just don't have that as a as a matter of the constitution right now which is why your right to vote really depends on your zip code in some places your right to vote is is very robust and it's easy to get access to the polls in other places um it's not and and that's really i think unfortunate mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk about um, some of these challenges to voting that are coming up specifically in 2020. Um, first of all, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, so there's been a lot of talk about mail-in voting and whether that should even be legal, whether there's fraud risk, whether ballots will get lost. Do you have what? Are, what are your thoughts on that? Because you meant, you do mention absentee ballots in the book and mail-in.
1: Yeah. No, and it's become a really um, hot button issue for a a number of reasons. And so let me just clarify a few points. One is that five states have exclusively, almost exclusively, voted by mail for years, including Republican-leaning Colorado, Utah. Um, We know how to vote by mail safely and securely. So the president, and unfortunately now the attorney general, um, Bill Barr, their claims that vote by mail is rife with voter fraud is, is false. They're false claims. Um, Yesterday, I think Wolf Blitzer interviewed Attorney General Barr and pressed him on his claims that, you know, buckets of fraudulent foreign ballots are going to invade the system if we allow widespread uh, vote by mail. And Wolf Blitzer pressed the attorney general of the United States whether he has actually any evidence. And the answer was no. He said that was he was just using his logic, which in my mind is a hunch, uh, which isn't particularly persuasive. So so vote by mail is 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 a safe way of voting. That being said, it's safe for COVID. And it's also can be done in a way that is, is protects against voter fraud. Uh, that being said, you know, we are in the midst of a pandemic, the states don't have the money they need to run these elections, they don't have the the people to they need to run these elections because of COVID. And so they're ha- trying to scramble. Um, and when that happens with any large enterprise, mistakes happen. And so a lot of what gets kind of Uh, put into the voter fraud bucket is really just administrative, you know, problems with not having the time, the resources and the people to do this in a way that is mistake free. I mean, fraud as a legal matter, Michael, is about pretending you're someone you're not, Um, faking it and going to the polls. That's exceedingly difficult to pull off. It carries a five year prison sentence under federal law. And to do it in a widespread way that would actually affect an election, you need a conspiracy. So you need a lot of people agreeing to pretend to be someone else and to get away with it at the polls. It's just not, it's not realistic. Um, that being said, if you would ask me, if we had done this interview when the book first re- first was published in June, I would say, you know, Americans need to pull together and ask for their, you know, and say pull together, but also just, you know, act individually to ask for your mail-in ballot. And given what's happened with the postal service since then in this administration, I don't give that advice anymore, even though it's it's a safer way of voting. I think in terms of making sure your vote is actually counted, the best thing to do is to get your mail-in ballot um, and to physically drop it off in either a drop box or at the polls during the early voting period. That way, the Postal Service can't lose your ballot. <laughs> and that's really sad, yeah. that that's where we are. But that is where we are, because this administration has made... No, no secret about efforts to basically suppress access to the polls, um, and I think some dubious, dubious calculation that that's going to to help the Trump campaign uh, win or basically stay in power. And and I think that that hurts people across the political spectrum. Everyone should should vote uh, regardless of who you vote for. That's how we we keep a democracy in the hands of the people. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And you do lay out in the book, the um, early voting, how it varies by state, you know, there are several helpful charts in the book, which I would encourage readers to look at, you know, if you wanna get information about your state, you know, what their early voting, mail-in procedures are, et cetera. Um, So another issue that is coming up with this election is something we saw in 2016, but wasn't being talked about quite as much in the lead up to it, it was more an after the fact discussion. um, And that's the issue of foreign election interference. so how much of a risk do you think that is this time around? and what what would those specific risks be?
1: Okay, so just on a footnote on the last comment that you made about the book, it does have a lot of charts, um, but of course, changes have been made with COVID and they're constantly being updated. So I encourage people to look at my website, com, or to follow me on Twitter because uh, I have research assistance, um, and we are doing weekly updates to keep people up to speed on covid changes to the to the election process in their states but if you want the most recent update for your for your state look on your own secretary of states websites because even a lot of these online voter registration organizations which are you know very well meaning and provide excellent services to the public the, the, the information is not all accurate. Um, so I would, of course, say start with my website, but if, you, but, but <laughs> even beyond that, go, go to your, to your, um, to your, your Secretary of State's website. And, and I think everyone should do that. Even if you believe you're registered, make sure you're registered because there have been so many changes. Uh, I think that's just a good personal practice. On, on Russian interference, Sorry. you know, in 2016, um, you know, we, the Mueller report, of course, also a bipartisan Senate Intel Committee. Uh, it, overwhelmingly, it's really, really clear it happened. I had former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein guest lecture at, at a class I taught at American University Law School uh, early this summer around the book, um, and he, you know, he ref- affirmed it's this is a serious issue, um, and it's happening in tw- in 2020. We just found out that you know um, an Intel report. I think this came out in the last day or so. Uh, indicating that the Russians were actually spreading disinformation about Joe Biden and suggesting that he had some mental incapacity, where of course he does have a lifelong stuttering issue, which I think contributes to sometimes um, why his his um, verbally he's not as smooth as some other people who don't have that. That was stopped by the Trump administration from being circulated to officials across the nation. So unfortunately in 2020, and I know I sound really really kind of against anti-Trump. But this is just these are just the facts right now. In 2020, we not only have um, Russians that are spreading disinformation online, but also the White House and the Trump campaign itself um, and not sharing with the American public. We also heard that the uh, director of national intelligence has announced that he is not going to verbally brief the United States Congress on what's happening with the Russians and interference in the election. Um, So how does this happen? You know, there is a question of of actual hacking into machinery i think there was recently in one state there was a, there's a there's um and I, I apologize i don't have i, I don't have the state i want to don't want to misstate it but there is you know some evidence that there was some hacking but the bigger real issue really is lies lies that come into our phones um through facebook through social media through our news feeds that either give bad information about candidates or bad information about the election itself um the good news Michael is Facebook announced I think today or yesterday that you know Mark Zuckerberg has said I'm we are affirmatively not going to post any information from campaigns the week leading up to the election on Facebook. They're going to post um as a banner when you log in uh, up to date election information by state so people can have accurate information. They are um going to take down any misinformation on um, on the th- November 3rd about calling elections. So what we're seeing is we are seeing the private sector now step up to basically do the kind of information regulation that the government refuses to do, and not just the Trump administration, but the United States Congress. There have been multiple bills since 2016 that have been stalled by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and not been brought up in the, to the Senate that would have uh, uh, positively impacted this problem, but it's a serious issue. It's an affront on a a American democracy. It's an attempt by the Russians to dupe people from actually choosing their own leaders in America. And it's quite serious. And so again, my recommendation to people is to go to the source and become your own best detectives to make sure you have accurate information for yourself and your family and your children, frankly, who cannot vote the ones under 18 cannot vote so so it's incumbent on parents to do that to protect democracy and the integrity of the process for our children just like we do we protect their health we make sure they're educated uh, we hold their hands when they're crossing the street when they're they're tiny and i think we also need to protect the electoral process for them so they can live in the kind of democracy that that we were born into
0: So let me let me give you a hypothetical here. So let's say I'm a Trump supporter um, because, you know, these issues you're talking about, Russian interference, it seems to be favoring Trump. I see these things coming in. um, I might not necessarily believe you that the thing about Biden, his mental health declining is a lie. Maybe I think that's true. I read an article that said that's true. Regardless, I think that that kind of information is it's helping my candidate. I think it's better for the country itself. So why? Even if I think this is good this interference, why why should I still be
1: concerned about that? Because of, that here. That's a great question. I appreciate that question, Michael, and I think it's a fair question. Um and it's very easy to sort of both for Democrats and Republicans to sort of be on their team in this moment. I'm on this team. I want to see mm-hmm. I want to see a win. Um I want to win this battle. I want to win, you know, this this inning in the baseball game. Um win 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 and I think what the book, both books and, you know, as you know, Harper um, published a book last year on on the Constitution with me, how to read the Constitution and why. Uh, I think we have to look at the rules of the game. And if you go to a sports event, to a baseball game, and all of a sudden the rules are only favoring the one team, one um, and the umpires are being purchased, basically paid off by one team. People stop going because because the game isn't isn't interesting anymore. It's not fair anymore. And what we're seeing with Russian interference is a degradation of American democracy itself. So even if you like Trump, if you allow the rules of the game and the umpires to basically sit it out, um, the, 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 the system itself is now distorted and cancerous. And so when the next president, I mean, Trump won't live forever when there's a president in the future that you don't like. It's too late then to say, oh, by the way, I want the rules to apply to this person, even even though I'm fine with the rules not applying to Donald Trump. Y- you're witnessing a destruction of the system itself. And it's the system of separation of powers, the system of accurate information, the, the system of allowing people to to vote freely and fairly. That's what protects all of us. Um, that's what protects One person today from being bullied by an overbearing government and someone else five, 10, 20 years from now being bullied by an overbearing government. Nobody wants that. And so this is why it's a moment for we, the people, to stand up for protection of the rules of the game, because when the rules of the game get destroyed, we all lose. And and I've used this analogy before. It's like a bridge. Um, We can fight over who's who wins the directing traffic on the bridge, the red cop or the blue cop. But if the bridge itself goes down, we all go down with it. Uh, And that's why Trump supporters Mm -hmm. should care about this, Uh, because Trump won't be in office forever. But if we if we shift to a one party system, a one person system and not a democracy, that's going to come back to bite everyone eventually.
0: So even so to go back to the baseball analogy for a second, even if the umpire is favoring my child, I still want to see my child win the game fair and square.
1: Exactly. And. You know, and your child in the next game might be the one that that the um, umpire disfavors. And then it's too late to say, wait a minute, I want to go back to the old rules where it was fair. Uh, That's too late now. The rules of the game are there. You know, we see this across sports, the rules of the game. Sometimes certain teams are doing great in a particular season. Sometimes they're not. But the rules are consistent across all, all of the leagues, all the teams and year after year after year. And that keeps people in the sport that keeps spectators in the sport that keeps serious athletes in the sport. And that kind of thing is the same. That kind of theory applies the same way to, um, to the, the presidency. I mean, imagine that, you know, in baseball, it's whoever pays the umpire the most, that, that is going to win the game. So one year maybe it's team blue, one year it's team red. It's the same kind of thing. Then the, the sport itself is over. The sport itself isn't isn't meaningful anymore. Um, it's not always one party that's in power, but if you shift the, the rules of the game so that it's about a party in power, not about we the people, we all lose. And I really, honestly, Michael, I, I fear for what America will look like on the other side of that. I mean, the framers and people in the civil rights movement You know, the revolutionaries literally gave their lives, gave their lives um, to to flee a a monarchy where where it was the arbitrary whims of the ruler that that dictated how their lives went. Um, And I think we need to respect that and we need to honor that by going to the polls. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So one last topic I want to cover here, the topic of students and voting, because a lot of these college students, the year they go off to college is when they're 18. So it's likely the first time they can vote, but they're, a lot of times they're in another state, they're away from home, so they have to figure out, you know, do they want to do an absentee ballot? Should they register in their state they're going to school in? So what what advice would you give to students going away to college um, for voting? Obviously, this year is, you know, an unusual year with the pandemic, but in an ideal year where we don't have to worry about whether, you know, schools are closing or whatever, what would you tell students going off to college about making sure they're registered to vote?
1: Yeah. So a couple things. One is I just um, I, you know, I speak to a lot of students, too, and I think there's a general sense that voting doesn't matter. Um, The uh, Knight Foundation just did a big study that that's the number one obstacle to voting. It's not even suppression efforts by states. It's just people's apathy. And I think students, especially those that care about, you know, the various civil rights things that are going on today, um, need to understand it's it's the vote that actually translates your passion for change into actual change, and it's incremental and it comes with compromise. Um, that's number one. As far as the registration thing, people need to keep in mind that there are a lot of people on the ballot we call down ballot that are for races in your in your community where you plan to live, um, and that's hard for students to keep in mind. I mean, early on in their lives and in their careers, but you know, if you care about policing, for example. Um, you know, sometimes sheriffs are on the ballot. Uh, if you care about prosecutors making good decisions as far as who's held accountable for crimes, district attorneys are often on the ballot. So it's worth thinking about where do you want to have a voice in not just the presidential election, but your own community? And I would vote there. Um, if you if some students, if they want to have their vote matter more, if they say are in a purple state, Uh, For say they are going to school in Wisconsin. That's a really important state that determines a presidential election. So they want to vote in Wisconsin. It is often difficult to get yourself registered in new states. I can't speak off the top of my head about Wisconsin. But be aware that I think in shifting your registration, you have to do it very early and you have to make sure that you cross all your uh, T's and dot your I's, not only in terms of shifting your registration, but also having the proper ID at the polls in Texas, for example, a student ID does not work. Um, so make sure you have all that squared away before you shift your uh, your registration to your to your where you live. Um, excuse me, where you're going to school. The third thing to keep in mind is it can affect financial aid. So even if you've done all the other pieces and you're and you want um, you're comfortable that you can that you can vote in where you're you know w- the state where you're in school and that's where you'd like to vote, but make sure, check with your financial aid office that that's not going to impact your financial aid. What I'm telling students and parents, though, so in this pandemic, is if you're already registered in your home state, stick with that, because there are so many balls up in the air um, that I just think if the objective is to just make sure your vote is registered, and I think that's really important to give a shot across the bow to all politicians, that it's still democracy by we the people, I would, I would just... Confirm that you're still registered and vote by mail, um, or if you're home during COVID, going to school online, vote in your in your home state, and then reconsider it for the next election. Uh, because getting massive numbers of voters to the polls, I think, is really important to protect democracy itself on the um, on the ballot this November. And registration numbers are down due to COVID.
0: That's absolutely. So one last question for you. So we normally end this podcast by asking our guests, who their favorite teacher was, but we asked you that last time you were here. So I'm going to ask you a bit of a different question Mm -hmm. since you yourself are a teacher. Can you tell us about um, a particular student who inspired you at some point?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I have a student now, he's been in more than one class, but um, he is, he's completely blind and he, and actually there were two students like this in one of my first year classes um who, who used technology uh, to to read, I think it was auditorily. They they sort of would listen to the case books um through some kind of taping mechanism. And these both of these students did very, very well. I think got A minuses in in my first class, Civil Procedure One. I have one of them in my current class again. And I'll tell you, um I mean law school is really, really hard. It teaches you a different way to think and and so to to see these students come through um with you know law school with no accommodations from my part um and to do well and to be very very committed and passionate to their education and not consider themselves frankly in any way at a disadvantage and not want to be treated that way that is inspiring to me um because I don't get that across the board i mean i, I definitely Fine. Some of my students I'm pretty tough on. I'm pretty tough in general. I, I have a very rigorous class. I expect people to be prepared. Um, and, you know, I, I hit fastballs in class. And some students are intimidated by that or they feel like it's a bit unfair. But th- this is the real world. And so to have students come in um, and and, you know, t- t- hit what hit back at whatever p- pitch I give. Um, when they're they're not even legally blind, but completely blind at birth, it's just absolutely astonishing to me. And it's been truly a privilege, truly a privilege. And I'm very flattered uh, that they come back for more in my classes.
0: Kim, thanks for making a second appearance on the podcast. It's been uh, very delightful um, and also very inspiring to talk to you about all of this, given the election coming up.
1: Oh, it's been, I, it's always such a, um, uh, really a privilege to have these discussions, particularly with young people, and and I, I want to thank Harper as an institution, frankly, for for partnering with me to roll out these books on basic civic education because only a third of Americans can name all three branches of government—judicial, executive, and legislative—and in 2015, a study was done of recent college grads, and 10% thought the TV reality judge Judge Judy was on the United States Supreme Court. So I really believe what what, what we're doing at Harper is fundamental to everything else we talk about in politics and um, the crises that are happening nationally and globally and elections. So I get asked a lot, you know, what can be done about these problems or can the president do that? Or can Congress do that? All of it, Michael boils down step one to education, to civic education and partnering with Harper to roll out a series of books. And we're going to have another one next summer um to educate people about the basics of how the law works, how the government works. That is step 1. Step 2 is is voting uh once you have a, an understanding about how your government works and uh and then step 3 is as we can band together to actually make some changes and have a community and an environment in American democracy that is healthy for everyone. So it's really been a privilege to work with people at Harper and and I as I'm grateful that you know, you all really jumped at I think the opportunity to work together um, to do this. I think vital civic service in in educating regular people in accurate but common sense language about about uh, what it what their government really means, and so they can make decisions for themselves and not not rely on you know fake news on the internet. Um, Education is step one. And so, again, I'm grateful for this opportunity. We appreciate you so much. Thanks for this. This is great. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.